I think the essence of horror films is fear. And I think it's the task of the filmmaker to break through the barrier of the conscious mind and strike directly at the remaining childhood fears. I'm Eli Roth, and this is my Shudder original series, History of Horror Uncut. Each episode is a candid conversation with a master of the genre, drawn from raw and unfiltered interviews conducted for my AMC TV series, Eli Roth's History of Horror. These are deep dives into the dark power and wicked fun of frightening movies, the craft that goes into making them, and the ways that horror reflects the anxieties of our times. They're also probing, insightful, and often funny conversations that open up doors into the minds of horror's star creators. The terror begins right after this. The word legendary is overused, but in the case of Roger Corman, it's well-deserved. Roger trained as an engineer at Stanford, but after four days on the job, he quit to make movies. He began producing and directing low-budget independent films, targeting the underserved teen market. What his films lacked in production value, they made up for in imagination. And, as Roger famously declared, he never lost a dime on a picture. And he made a lot of them. From 1955 to 1971, he directed over 50 films, Everything from monster movies to biker pictures to his famous adaptations of the works of Edgar Allan Poe. He then focused on producing and film distribution, launching the careers of some of the biggest names in Hollywood, including Francis Ford Coppola, Jonathan Demme, and Joe Dante, and bringing films by auteurs like David Cronenberg, Ingmar Bergman, and Federico Fellini to America. Roger sat down with History of Horror showrunner Kurt Sienga to talk about his remarkable career. You started off directing and producing low-budget films in the 1950s. How did you deal with the limitations you faced? The early films I directed, I was a beginning director with a short schedule, and I did what I could. I had absorbed the films I'd seen. I used certain camera techniques that I'd seen before and invented some myself. Now, I'm not certain I really invented them. It's just that I had never seen them in other films. They may not have been as original as I thought. In 1957, you directed something like nine films, uh, including Attack of the Crab Monsters, a personal favorite. Um, that film didn't have a lot of production values, but it was packed full of interesting ideas. Uh, what are your memories of that film? Well, I remember specifically, because I didn't have very much money, and I remember exactly, the crab monster cost $1,200, and it was paper mache, but it was very big, and it looked pretty good, but we were shooting it on the rocks at uh, Cabrillo Beach, and the waves were hitting up against the monster, and I could see that the waves 
were destroying the back of the monster. So I had to shoot as fast as I possibly could and from only certain angles not to let the audience see that the monster was being destroyed while we shot it. Speaking of monsters, tell me about the monster from It Conquered the World. Well, the monster from Saturn was based upon my studies at the university where I had studied physics. And I tried within the fantastic world of science fiction to be as logical as possible. And I realized a giant planet like Saturn would have heavy gravity. So therefore, a giraffe could not exist, but a turtle could because it was close to the ground and would be able to handle the gravity. So I had the monster built about the height of my hand here. And uh, thus it was physically correct for the planet Saturn. I was having coffee as they were setting up the first shot and Beverly Garland, a very hip young actress, came up to the monster and she looked and she noticed that I was watching her and she leaned down and she kicked the monster and said, so you've come to conquer the earth, they eh? take that. And she kicked it again. And I realized what she was doing. And I pulled over the prop man and said, I plan to shoot the monster first thing, but I'm gonna hold until after lunch. And I want that monster 12 feet tall by lunchtime. Thus, my number one rule, the monster must always be taller than the leading lady. So the monsters had to be tallish, but were they always evil? I tried to make the monsters complex in their psychology, and I tried to make them not just totally evil, but maybe evil from our point of view, but not from their point of view. They were doing simply what was logical for them. Whether the audience understood that or not, uh, I'm not certain, but I felt that I was uh, simply making the monsters more interesting. When you were making monster movies in the 50s, how did you compete with big studios like Warner Brothers? You could spend a fortune building the giant ants in them. Well, I invented a theory which was that the audience should not see the monster clearly until late in the picture, that it would heighten the suspense if you saw maybe the shadow of the monster or the monster in a position where the light is just striking in the side. So you never see it really clearly, which I did think and I do, I do believe that heightens the suspense, but it also hides the fact that you have a low budget monster. You made a great series of films based on the works of Edgar Allan Poe. Uh, when did you become interested in Poe? I read The Fall of the House of Usher in uh, middle school and uh, loved the story. And I asked my parents for the complete works of Edgar Allan Poe for Christmas. They were happy to give it to me. I could have asked for a shotgun or, or something. So at a very young age, I read everything Poe had uh, had ever written. And when I started making various types of films, particularly horror and terror films, I wanted eventually to do 
a Poe film, which I finally did get the opportunity to do with The Fall of the House of Usher, the first of the Poe stories I had read. And before The Fall of the House of Usher, your horror films were all in black and white. Uh, Usher's in deep, rich color. So shooting in color film was a lot more expensive. Uh, but why was it necessary to do it that way? It wasn't absolutely necessary that I shoot in color. Some of the best horror films ever made were shot in black and white. There's something to be said for the gradations of the light on a black and white film. But I felt I wanted the richness of Poe's stories, and I felt I could do better simply with my own concept of lighting and with the set design and using colors for what I felt rightly or wrongly, might have some psychological meaning. Well, speaking of psychology, why do you think horror films appeal to people? I think the essence of horror films is fear. It's the fear of the child who's afraid of thunder, lightning, the monster under the bed. He's beginning to come to grips with the world. It's a world he doesn't totally understand, so he believes there are supernatural, unnatural, possibly repulsive things out there, and he's afraid of them. His parents tell them there's nothing to be afraid of, but he knows there's something to be afraid of. But as he grows older, he realizes these were childhood fears. And in his conscious mind, he has put them away. But in his unconscious mind, those fears still remain. And I think it's the task of the filmmaker to break through the barrier of the conscious mind and strike directly at the remaining childhood fears. Your use of haunted houses in particular seems very Freudian. Yes, I do believe that the house, particularly the haunted house, a traditional house, does have a sexual meaning. The house represents, to a certain extent, a woman's body. The door, the windows, these are entrances to the woman's body. And as we enter into the house, we have again the fear of the unknown of the child, but the desire of the teenager or older to go into that house and explore the woman's body. Tell me a little about the making of the Tomb of Lygia. Uh, you don't say much about it in your autobiography, but it's risen in esteem over the years. And stylistically, it seems a lot different than your other films. The Tomb of Lygia was the last of the Poe films. I felt that I was beginning to repeat myself, and I wanted to vary it as much as possible. For one thing, again, I thought of the house as possibly a woman's body, but also a contained situation. And I did not want to show the reality outside the house. When I did, it was always night, or if it was day, it was a foggy, dark day. I didn't want to shoot in broad daylight. And on the tomb of Lygia, 
I said, I'm tired of my own theory. We're going to shoot this picture. We were shooting in England. We're going to shoot it in the beautiful English countryside in broad daylight and to hell with my theories. And actually the film turned out fairly well. And over a period of time, it sort of gained in uh, critics' uh, opinion. It was a very good script by Bob Town, incidentally, one of his first scripts. And it was a rather complex story having to do with Lygia maybe coming back to life, maybe not coming back to life. Sort of a ghost story. It is, to a large extent, a ghost story. That film starred Vincent Price, who was perhaps too old for that part, but still he's Vincent Price. What was he like to work with? Vincent Price was wonderful to work with. He was a highly intelligent, educated man. He graduated from Yale here and gone to the University of London in England and then had studied, I think, at RADA, the uh, Royal Academy of Dramatic Arts. So he came with great intelligence and a classical training as an actor. He required very little directing. My work with Vincent really was done to a large extent before we ever started the picture. The pictures were shot on three-week schedules. There, I always felt there isn't time to spend a lot of time in a three-week schedule discussing motivation and so forth with the actor. But before you shoot, you can sit down and talk with the actor. And so I spent most of my time working with Vincent and with other actors before shooting. So we established the basic line of the character and that required just a minimum of actual acting direction on the set. What's your favorite of the movies you made with Price? Probably the very first of the films, uh, The Fall of the House of Usher. He took the film very seriously. He dyed his hair. We went through a lot of preparatory improvisations and work for it. And I think it was one of his best performances. That and the first film we shot in England, which was Mask of the Red Death, he played Prince Prospero. And again, he played a man of evil, but there were shadings of tenderness within him towards a young girl that he had taken from the plague-stricken countryside. What did you think of Alfred Hitchcock's Psycho? I thought Psycho was a brilliant film. It's one of the greatest horror films I think that's ever been made. I think Psycho was, to a certain extent, a game changer in that it was a major studio, expensive film. Most horror films and science fiction films at that time were low-budget films made by the independents. Psycho showed the major studios that they could take this and move the genre up, as it were, and gave a certain legitimacy to the genre. Did it also have an effect on the kinds of films you produced? I was influenced by Psycho. I liked particularly the fact that Hitchcock took his time in building up to the terror, which was something I always did. I've always believed you can't just 
hit somebody with a shock effect. You must build up the tension so the audience starts to lean forward, starts to get into the concept, and then you hit the shock effect. And I think Hitchcock did that, I think, to a greater extent, and frankly, better than what I was doing. What are audiences looking for in a horror film, character or story? I think the two go together. The tension precedes the shock. It's like it takes two to tango. The shock will not work if you have not built the tension to that point. What did you think of The Exorcist? I think The Exorcist, like Psycho, was something of a game changer. Psycho has shown the major studios that they could succeed in horror or terror on a big budget. The Exorcist had the added advantage of coming off of a best-selling novel. So it was even a bigger film than Psycho. It was shot in horror, and it was brilliantly made. I think people who know horror still, after all of these years, remember the sequence where the little girl's head twirls around. I looked at it myself, and I thought, this is great. This is what you can do if you have both money and talent. Are there advantages for filmmakers to work under constraints? It's better to have a big budget, but there are some advantages to a lower budget. You can experiment a little more. You can take chances. You can try things out, and you might be able to solve a problem with an interesting use of the camera, some sort of technique that doesn't cost a great deal of money, which in the long run might be better than the big budget version of just showing it. Let's talk a little about Silence of the Lambs. Well, Silence of the Lambs, again, had the advantage of coming from a best-selling novel, a big-budget film. Jonathan Demme, a good friend of mine, directed it, and I played the head of the FBI in Silence of the Lambs. And once more, we had Hannibal Lecter, a totally evil man, a monster, a human monster, but you started to feel a little bit, not much, but a little bit of empathy for a cannibal. And I think that, again, the complexity of the monster, Lecter, lent, it, lent itself very well to the picture. You mentioned Jonathan Deming, and we've had Joe Dante in here as well. Do you feel like a proud father to all these people whose careers you launched? I'm very proud of what we call our graduates, uh, Francis Coppola, Jim Cameron, Joe Dante, Jonathan Demme, Ron Howard, and so forth. And all of them have given me, at various times, small parts to play. With Jonathan Demme, I played the head of the FBI, and on the Manchurian candidate, I played the ex-president, and I played senators, governors, lawyers, district attorney once, 
Joe Dante on The Howling called me and said, Roger, you've played all of these distinguished people. Would you like to play a bum on Skid Row? And I said, yes, I'm there. What did you think of The Howling? As we said earlier, sometimes with a low budget or with The Howling, more of a medium budget, the director, the screenwriter, the producer can come together and solve some problems with original, interesting ideas. So The Howling belied its budget. I think both John Sayles, the writer, and Joe as the director were able to get effects without spending a fortune that were very, very effective. I thought The Howling is one of the best medium-budget horror films ever made. So let's backtrack to Joe's start with Piranha. How did Piranha come into being? Piranha came to us in a strange way. A young Japanese woman, Chaco Van Leeuwen, not a Japanese name, she'd married uh, a Dutchman, uh, had the script of Piranha and half the money. And she came to me and said, would you put up half the money and distribute the film and we will co-produce this film? And I thought the idea was very good and I said yes. But frankly, her script was not very good. So I brought in John Sayles on one of his first scripts to write the script. John Davison was, was in our office, one of our young guys, was the actual line producer who ran it, and Joe directed it. And it was one of the most successful films we ever had. It started sort of a franchise. I don't know how many piranhas uh, there have been. And one of the keys to it was we brought humor into it. I've always liked the idea of bringing humor into a horror film. My own film, uh, Little Shop of Horrors and Bucket of Blood, both did that. They were really horror comedies. And Piranha had a little bit of comedy, but was primarily a horror film. But that little bit of comedy did help the film. A couple of people's commented that Piranha was a little bit like Jaws. My answer was, Jaws is a little bit like the first film I ever made, Monster from the Ocean Floor. You can never say you're totally original. For instance, I once did that in a lecture, and somebody in the back of the room got up and said, you're forgetting the 1923 German expressionist film that had a similar theme. And of course, I'd never even heard of the German film, but that taught me never to say I'm completely original because I think what we all do, we work with, we assimilate the work that's gone before, and then we bring what we can of originality to it. Well, Jaws was really the first summer blockbuster and had a big impact in the movie industry. How did that change uh, your business? Jaws changed things for the business even more than The Exorcist or Psycho. When I saw Jaws, I said to the guys in the office, this is possibly the beginning of trouble for us. The major studios have finally caught on to what we're doing. And we may have some problems here. And just shortly thereafter, 
I saw Star Wars. And I said, this is a blow to all of us. It is clear the studios understand what the low-budget independent uh, filmmakers have been doing, and they're doing it, and we're in trouble because we cannot compete. What were the low-budget filmmakers doing that the studios finally picked up on? There were a number of us making these films. Bill Castle, who was a good friend of mine, I always thought of as a friend and a competitor. I was making films for maybe fifty to a hundred thousand dollars. He was spending a little more. He was spending a hundred to a hundred and fifty thousand dollars, and we were successful because we had the market to ourselves. After Jaws, after Star Wars. We didn't have the market to ourselves anymore, and it's questionable if we had any market at all, but we kept going. We did the best we could. Okay, to clarify, what was the market? Would you call them exploitation films, drive-in movies, movies for teenagers? Our films were sometimes called exploitation films, which I remember irritated Bill. It didn't irritate me. I said, they are exploitation films. We are exploiting the subject. Every film exploits the subject. But the genres that seemed to be working were horror films and science fiction films particularly. Also, teenage films were doing very well because, again, the major studios were making films with a 50-year-old leading man and a 40-year-old leading lady, and the audience was 15 to 25, and we were using teenagers for that audience. We played all types of theaters, but specifically, we had a lock on the drive-in market. The young kids came to the drive-ins for various reasons, and they liked to see this type of film, particularly when the actors were teenagers. How did video and VHS coming in change things for you? When video came in, it cut into our market. It cut into the market both for the independents and the majors, but video itself provided us with a new market. So we continued pretty much as we did, but knowing that we were going to be making less money from the theaters than we had before, but that was made up by the fact that we had this whole new market from video, so we were in good shape. There was no problem there. Your company, New World Pictures, distributed David Cronenberg's The Brood. How did that come to pass? New World was both production and distribution company. We had to have enough films to, as we used to say, to feed the dinosaur, enough films to have the distribution company working full time. The Brood was David Cronenberg's film. It was an extremely well-made film. I really liked the film. So we took it on for distribution for two reasons. I thought it was a very, very good film, and I was convinced that it would be successful at the box office, and it was. What were your impressions of Cronenberg? David Cronenberg is a very intelligent and witty man. He knows what he's doing. He's very talented. He can talk about it very seriously, and then he can turn around and make a joke about it. He's just a a very talented director who's a good guy to talk with. 
Cronenberg's early work had exploitation elements, but you could always tell there's a guiding intelligence and an artistry behind it all. Could you tell me a little about the sensibility it brings to his films? David Cronenberg is one of the few directors who is able to take an exploitation subject, such as a horror film, but make it personal to him so that he is an auteur. He brings his own thoughts, his own ideas to it, and if it is possible, and I think it is possible, to make an art-slash-horror film, David Cronenberg is one of the few who can do it. I think the word art-horror film is very seldom used, but it should be used more because it's a very imaginative genre. It's one in which the director, working with the writer, the producer, the actors, and so forth, can do very good work working together to make a really fine film. And I could say more, but I'll end that with a statement, a fine film. You made a point of working with women and hiring female directors, uh, which was pretty rare until lately. Uh, what was your philosophy behind that? I've probably worked more with women writer, directors, producers, and so forth than anybody else. And it's been said that I was working as part of the feminist movement. Possibly I was, but there was a practical aspect to it as well. Assuming women are equal in talent to men, which they are, if most companies are hiring primarily men, it means they are missing half of the employment market. So I could have somebody like Gail Ann Hurd, who came out of my old school, Stanford, with a Phi Beta Kappa key and was my assistant, went on to be one of the most important producers in Hollywood. I hired Gail not because she was a woman, simply she was the best available for the job. The surprising film that women made, Amy Jones directed Slumber Party Massacre, and it was written by a well-known woman novelist. So again, uh, let me see, uh, Stephanie Rothman uh, uh, started with me a number of others. My wife, Julius, produced over 30 films. And the choice is not, and I think it's a false choice, if you say, I'm going to hire somebody because she's a woman. I think the correct choice is to say, I'm going to hire the best available person. And I don't care whether it's a man or a woman. New World Pictures released movies like Lady Frankenstein and Eat My Dust, but you also distributed Bergman's Cries and Whispers and Fellini's Amarcord. Tell me a little about that. New World released both horror films and art films, and people said to me, this is a little schizophrenic. Uh, how can you distribute these two t different types of films? And my answer was, they're films. We can distribute any type of film. What had happened was we were startlingly successful with New World. I, I don't think we had a failure in our first 20 films. Every film was successful. 
So we had had established credibility with the theater owners, and we may or may not have been at that time, probably were, the uh, most important independent distribution company. And I had always loved the works of Ingmar Bergman, Fellini, a number of others, Truffaut, René, and so forth. And I heard that Ingmar Bergman had made cries and whispers with his own money. And to show that an artist can also be a businessman, he worked out his own distribution plan. He divided the world up into its different countries, each share of the pie. If the United States was, say, 30% of the world, his offer to an American distributor was pay me in advance 30% of the budget, so all around I get all my money back immediately, and then I'll split the profits with everybody 50-50 in their country. I heard about this, and I contacted his agent, Paul Koner, and I said, I will take the picture sight unseen. And uh, he wrote back, Paul, of course, said yes, but Bergman wrote back saying, I had the chance to pull out of the deal if I didn't like the film, which, of course, I never did. My feeling was that these auteurs were making brilliant films, but they were not getting the audience in the United States they deserved. Their films were being distributed by the major studios, who are great distributors, but didn't really understand how to give individual attention to this type of film, or they were distributed by little companies who were really more aficionados than anything else and didn't know how to book the films correctly or the power to demand the right terms. We were in between. We could give individual attention, for instance, on the premiere of Cries and Whispers, uh, yellow roses were key to the film. I had the girls in the office and a couple of actresses I know wear long gowns and hand out yellow flowers to all the women who attended the premiere. We were doing individual things like that to publicize the film. And the film was quite successful. It was a brilliant film. And from that, some of the other European filmmakers, as well as Japanese, we were distributing for Kurosawa as well, heard about this, and they came to us. Now, I simply wanted to distribute those films. I didn't do it to make money. It wasn't charity. I didn't expect to lose money. But I thought, if, if I can at least break even, I simply want to bring this type of film to a larger American audience. Did you stage stunts like that for your horror films? We did do occasional stunts on horror films. For instance, Francis Coppola's first film was a horror film called Dementia 13 uh, that, that I backed. Actually, the film was a little bit short, so I hired a hypnotist who had some sort of honors from some society and have him appear on the film at the beginning to hypnotize the audience. Now, I did a few of those things, but the greatest was my friend Bill Castle. He did things like uh, 
he would have a ghost on a wire come out from above the screen and float over the audience. He did things like advertise a film so shocking that he felt to protect the audience, he would have nurses in the lobby to tend to anybody who fainted from the horror within his film. He was the master of that type of stunt. Joe Dante's movie Matinee is uh, John Goodman playing a character like William Castle. Joe Dante always loved the stunts that Bill Castle was doing. So he made his picture Matinee about a Bill Castle-like character who comes to a small town in Florida. And in order to drum up publicity, I don't remember exactly what it was, but he spreads the rumor that it might be communist. And all the people who were against communism rose up and picketed, we were going to picket the film. And again, it was a great parody of what uh, Bill Castle was doing. Have the audience's expectations of what they want from a horror film changed over the years? The audience's expectation for a horror film has changed over the years. They're looking for a bigger budget, a more opulently produced, hopefully a better film. And they're also looking for more explicit horror. When I did the Edgar Allan Poe films, most of the horror, or you might call it terror, was psychological. It was in the mind. It was building up this sense of horror. Today, somebody cuts an actor's hand off at the wrist and the blood spurts across the screen, which means the next director has got to cut the arm off at the elbow. And I myself am not so much in favor of this tremendous amount of really gruesome horror, but the audience does seem to want that today. You directed a whole lot of movies earlier in your career, then you just stopped. Is directing more fun or is producing more fun for you? I've directed about 60 films and I've produced a couple of hundred films. Uh, Simply age caught up with me and I felt uh, it's easier to have the director go out there at six o'clock in the morning and start shooting and as the producer come out at nine and say, what did you shoot that shot for? But I loved directing. To me, the most fun, the most creative satisfaction I got was when I was a director-producer, both for, as I say, the creative satisfaction and the fact that as both the director and the producer, I had the control I felt I needed to make the films I wanted to make. And that was the one and only Roger Corman. Join us next time for Joel Schumacher. And be sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen so you never miss an episode. History of Horror Uncut is a Shudder original podcast hosted by Eli Roth and Kurt Sayanga, produced by Kurt Sayanga, engineered by Chris Heckman, with music by Maestro Joseph Bishara. For Oddity, Jessica Bastilos Heckman and Lacey Oglevoy. For Shudder, Craig Engler, Nicholas Lazo, and Samuel Zimmerman.
The interviews in this program were originally conducted for the AMC television series Eli Roth's History of Horror. Executive producers Eli Roth, Kurt Sayanga, Stephen Michaels, Allison Berkeley, Joseph Freed, Jody Flynn, and James McNabb. Senior producer Ben Raphael Schur. Thanks to Kelly Nash, Richard Drew, Chris Powers, and most valuable player Clara Zwerbel at AMC. This is Kurt Sayanga for Eli Roth's History of Horror Uncut.